0: That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: Today's program was brought to you by Fiji Water and Patina Events at Brooklyn Botanic Garden, an idyllic location for weddings, corporate events, and parties of any style. Visit us at patinaevents.com.
2: Hey, Food Radio listeners. I'm HRN's Executive Director, Katie, and I'm really excited to share that we're launching a brand new show. Meat and 3 is HRN's weekly food news roundup. Tune in for a deep dive and three tasty shorts every Friday evening. It's 15 minutes, so you can listen while you wait for your pizza. This week, the fight for universal free lunch in New York City public schools isn't over yet.
1: I'm overburdened. I'm
2: overworked. I don't get staff when people are out. Plus, Dana Cowan, former editor of Food & Wine magazine and host of HRN's Speaking Broadly, catches up with Valerie Lomas, the winner of the Great American Baking Show's Derailed Season 3. Discover how a Danish brewery is motivating people to get fit, and hear Allison Roman speak to the highs and lows of her cookie recipe going viral. Every time I see anyone in a social setting, that's generally the first thing they ask me is, how are the cookies? Be better informed and wildly inspired by the stories and people you hear on Meet and Three. Find us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.
3: Welcome to The Line here on Heritage Radio Network. I can't believe it, but we're back live, and this is episode 57. Yes, 57. I'm your host, Eli Sussman, chef, co-owner of Samisa Restaurant, located in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. If you're listening for the very first time, each week I welcome a chef or a restaurateur to basically share their life story in food, from their childhood to their earliest jobs in food, what their current job is, and where their future may take them. Today's guest is Chef Christina Lecky. Christina attended culinary school at the Art Institute of Philadelphia. She has worked for Alfred Portal, April Bloomfield, and she now leads the kitchen at an Andrew Tarlow restaurant, Raynard's, inside the Wythe Hotel in Williamsburg. Christina, welcome to the line. Hi. <laughs> Let's start at the way beginning. You grew up in Philadelphia. Did you have a healthy house or a junk food <laughs> house? And what was your early childhood food interactions like in your, in your own childhood home?
4: Um, I grew up in a definitely busy, working-class household. And Sundays were the day to have an actual sit-down, healthy, or at least very homemade meal. And I very much looked forward to that. And I think very early on, I was very highly critical of my mom's cooking. (laughs) (laughs) And would sometimes (laughs) definitely throw mini temper tantrums if I did not approve of what she had chosen for her Because she Sunday made a lot meal. of uh,
3: tuna casserole or something like <laughs> not, that?
4: Not, super, not Midwestern-y, but like maybe a meatloaf every now and again. Any ground meat when I was a child was a, was a cause of uh, a sudden bursts of anger.
3: Be- because of like <laughs> the taste or just like a huge chunk of meat yeah. in a loaf is I kind think of the gross to little kids? Yeah, yeah, exactly.
4: I think the aesthetic of it really uh, brought me down. But I was, you know... Pretty savvy and kind of a survivalist and spent a lot of time with my Italian grandparents from Italy and <laughs> would try to be at their house as often as possible because they were always cooking from the you know, from scratch and from the heart.
3: Yeah, tell me about your your grandparents. They, they had a garden in their backyard. They lived outside of Philadelphia. Yeah,
4: they had they had a nice very small chunk of land, but a little bit of land in the suburbs. Like 45 minutes to an hour outside of Philadelphia and I would sort of escape there every chance I had more than like two days off Um, Easter break, definitely all summer, Um, over Christmas, I would definitely just sort of gravitate towards there and just I just had a lot of fun with them, they were you know, they loved me, they took care of me, you know, I was definitely like the apple of their eye in a lot of ways and uh, I feel like I just love to absorb sort of their culture and Watch them cook and watch how they interacted with each other and it, you know it was just it was just really impressive and they were just kind of old world and was, I just sort of gravitated a, towards that.
3: Was there a Sunday gravy situation? There with was them, definitely or? yeah,
4: there was definitely a Sunday like Sunday was we would eat by like 3 pm and there would be multiple courses, usually like some sort of meat in the middle and then pasta at the end and then a big salad. Um, some random jug wine that maybe my uh, great uncle in New Jersey makes in his basement. It was always a little unclear where it came from, but uh, yeah, it, you know, definitely never saw a wine label in my house, in their house at all. It came from a secret cabinet in the basement.
3: Not um, a not a nine dollar <laughs> jug of Rossi. Yeah,
4: and maybe it was. I don't. I mean, but they were definitely hiding that. <laughs> um, but yeah, they just they just had such they loved to take their time cooking and they and when my great grandmother was alive she would like set up the table every sunday and make you know some sort of handmade pasta and that sort of kind of passed on when she passed on but they definitely still took a lot of pride in the cooking that they did i mean my grandfather worked really hard for most of his life um, he was a machinist. He worked in a factory, but he always joked and said my grandmother was kind of a bad cook. So he would come home after working like 12 hours a day and make dinner and a pretty elaborate dinner. And we would wait and it would be amazing. And even in the morning before he left for work, when I was staying with them in the summer, he would cook breakfast for me every morning. And it was like pretty, like it was just really great. And I felt really loved and taken care of.
3: What do you feel? Philadelphia, going to school there, growing up there, how did it, it shape you? Um, how did it shape you to be in the city, but also have that ability to kind of have that escape to the suburbs, that duality of growing up in sort of two different realms a little bit.
4: I mean, I don't know. I love, I love Philly. It's kind of like, you know, you're from kind of a similar place or around similar kind of cities. It's just, it's like just really real and people are just sort of really straightforward and honest and, um, definitely tell you how they feel when they feel it. And, you know, it's, it's definitely, like, a, like, in a lot of ways for me, it just felt like a real, like, working class city that, like, you could... was pretty liberal still, too. And I don't know, I just felt like I had gotten such... I'm glad I grew up in it, such a diverse sort of community of people. Um, and having that escape to go to the suburbs, which did feel very white and very kind of protected in a way it was, I I was, I liked that because I just liked being around my grandparents. I just thought they were cool. And I liked being, you know, and as I got older, I I valued more being in the city and I certainly started going to the suburbs less. And, um, I don't know. I just, I feel really grateful to grow up in, in the city for sure, as opposed to anywhere else.
3: You made the decision to, to stay there for school. And I know that there was a a Japan trip somewhere? I don't know. Was that pre-college or in the middle? Yeah, that was my senior year
4: of high school. I, I, like, begged my entire family to help me raise money to go on this trip. I'd honestly never been on a plane before. And I just was, you know, I I feel like maybe in a lot of ways, sometimes I can be a real extremist, like, all or nothing. And for me, it was just like, oh, my God, there's this one opportunity to go somewhere that, like, I'll never get to. I have to do this. And... For me, I had never eaten Japanese food growing up. I didn't, you know, I didn't, we just didn't eat that way. And that stuff wasn't like readily available. I think, you know, there weren't that many Japanese restaurants around. And so going there is what taught me about having a palate and about and watching my palate during that time grow. I mean, I feel like I was with a bunch of cranky high school kids and I was like super immersed into the culture and into eating, whereas they were like. I miss home, I want to go back, I don't like this food, the texture's weird, the blah, you know, raw fish, ooh, like, and I was like, raw fish, ooh, it's weird, but I kind of like it, like, I remember, like, drinking green tea and just being like, I don't get what this green tea is all about, it tastes like hot water, and then by the end of the trip, I, like, could completely taste the subtleties of it, and understood why it was, like, so revered, or why it was such a big, be- why it was such a precious thing and how you savored in a really sort of ceremonial way in a lot of ways. Um, because every night after our meal, we would, the entire family that I was staying with would sit down and it was multiple generations. I think that's quite common in Japan where you like, you definitely live with your grandparents or the grandparents move in with you at a certain point because you're meant to take care of your elders. And so it was a huge extended family all living there. And, yeah, we would have these, like, really, like, serene tea moments, and at first I was like, I don't get it. By the end of it, I was like, this is really awesome. Like, oh, my God. And then by the end of it, I completely Americanized it, and we were, like, having green tea drinking contests and, like, (laughs) you know, watching, like, these, like, 90-year-old Japanese, like, (laughs) grandma, grandpa, like, chugging. Something they've probably not done since, but...
3: Probably not. The... the (laughs) subtleties that you touched on about Japanese food actually makes it a difficult food for a young person to kind of wrap their head around because it's not French, which is big, totally. fatty. It's it's not Italian, which, you know, there's there's big, bright sauces. A lot of Japanese food is like a dab, a, a, a drop of this sauce on sure. this small piece of fish. So uh, what was the program first off? And also, you said that, you know, you really immediately attached yourself to the cuisine and everything. Uh, why do you think that was? Because you you then went to do fashion, but clearly you'd been grabbed by yeah. food on yeah, this it was, trip. It, it stayed
4: so. in the back of my mind. I mean, I almost contemplated going to culinary school after that, but I was like, oh, I'm not ready. That seems like a lot of work. I was, you know, I was really still conflicted about what I wanted my life to look like at, at a young age and... You know, I mean, I was there because, you know, I went to a, a public school in, in in the city and they wanted, there was a teacher who was at my school who uh, wanted to just mix, like Japanese people would come to my school for a couple months and then vice versa. But they, students from our school had never gone there and he really wanted to sort of get these city kids to see a completely different side of the world and a different culture. Um so that's why I was there and we wouldn't go to classes per se, but we were taught calligraphy and we like got to sit in classes and sort of observe, but, so it wasn't like, like for like formal educational, it was just more about submersing yourself in the culture and, and living with a family for an extended amount of time just to really get the idea of it. Um, I don't know why, I, I, I think it's like probably why I cook now, you know, I think it's like how shit is meant to be, you know, like... I was there and I had a Eureka moment. I like really, it changed my life. I was a different person after that trip. And, and I like had so much more love and appreciation of food. I had my first fine dining French experience while I was there eating at like a really like stoic, amazing, crazy French place in Japan. Like in addition to eating all this incredible Japanese food and uh, yeah, it it stuck with me. And I, like I said, I, I really felt like I understood what a palate was and, and and yeah, it, yeah, it changed me.
3: When you, when you come back, you are pursuing uh, a fashion career in, in what capacity were you uh, in that realm? Were you doing design work? Were you hoping to be more on the, the buying side or the business I side?
4: I a b- bit of, uh, I definitely took a lot of business classes and then I did some bi- um, basic design classes. Uh, learned a bit. I just like dabbled in all, like did a bit of textile design, uh, definitely took a bunch of studio classes. I think for me, what I was learning was that I really just didn't want to be sitting at a desk in any capacity. So I kept trying to reimmerse myself in college, like in ways that would keep me active and like busy doing something like physically, not just typing on a computer. I, I was learning very quickly that like, the thought of like office life in any form was just not going to be for me, um, and yeah, I'd externed at some places and I did some personal. I was like a personal shopper for a couple people for a while, and I sort of like enjoyed that, but nothing was really sticking. And you know, I was very nervous about having a happy, successful career, and I was kind of la- like I was kind of lazy. I didn't want to grind it out. I think in that industry, I was like, eh, I don't. It just I was I was just confused about what kind of job I would end up with and was nervous about paying my dues, I think.
3: So you decided to grind it out in the culinary <laughs> world? The the easiest transition well, you could have made. Uh so you go It to, is sort
4: of immediate gratification in you, a way.
3: <laughs> you go to culinary school. Uh is it fair to draw some distinct to to make some correlations between like the tactile act of touching fabric and drawing and also totally. putting plates together. Is it like the same part of your brain or I think is that not sim- fair? I
4: think it's similar parts of your brain, you know? Um, and yeah, it is funny. Like you, you are definitely grinding it out and you have to earn your stripes in the cooking world, but it is kind of immediate gratification. You know, you can immediately get your hands on a vegetable and a knife and, and start doing something, whether you're doing it well or not. <laughs> You'll definitely be immediately told that. But I found it to be instantly gratifying. And at least forward moving in a way that I think, like, paying my dues in the fashion industry was just not. It was it was going to be a lot more drudgery, I think.
3: Uh, you you end up at Stripe Bass yeah. in Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. Is that your first job out of culinary school?
4: That was, I was working in a couple, like I had a neighbor who had a couple restaurants in an area of Philadelphia called Chestnut Hill. And I was working in some of those restaurants in a pretty like lower kind of way and expediting and sort of doing some garmagee and just sort of getting my feet wet. But when I, I actually didn't graduate culinary school. I sort of didn't like it. it again, I would felt like it was like I'd gone to college. I was now I'm going to culinary school but then I'm in a kitchen when I'm not in culinary school and I felt like I was just learning more and I think a lot of people think and say this even though a lot of them probably graduate but it just felt like it made more sense to just be doing it so once I made the decision not to go back to school I wanted to work in the most hardest place that was at that was accessible for me Um, because I felt like I owe it to my, I need to learn now. Like it's on my own. It's like up to me to get the education since I've decided not to like go through the schooling fully. Um, and I felt like that's what striped bass was for me. It was like my culinary school.
3: And when you started there, you started as a line cook, a prep cook, something. A line cook, A line yeah. cook. And, and it was
4: funny. My first day, I ran into a really close friend of mine in the hallway. I was, like, nervous as hell, definitely, and over my head. Can't believe I got the job. And I ran into a friend from high school um, who is a friend of mine still but, and is cooking as well still. And and it was great. I felt immediately sort of, like, at ease. Like, okay, oh, you're doing this too. Awesome. Like, we got this. Um and I was definitely not a natural. Like, I was... People were definitely, go like, surpassing me on stations, and I struggled a lot. But I feel like once I sort of got the hang of it, it was like no going back. Like, I was able to really, like, please my chefs and make myself known that I was, like like, reliable and hardworking and consistent.
3: A lot of great chefs have come out of the Alfred Portal kitchens, just to name a few, Wiley Dufresne, Tom Calicchio, Bill Telepan, are a couple of the New York guys sure. that have been able to go on and do um, some pretty large-scale projects. Was Is Chef Portal, is it a teaching kitchen, or is it a forged-by-fire kitchen? And <laughs> Or is it both? And why... Why was it such a valuable experience I think it was a
4: teaching kitchen because, you know, I was working there five days a week, and then I would take a bus to New York and go to Gotham on my day off to see how the real place is run. And having that experience, I was like, holy shit, okay, like, I'm in New York. These people are doing, like, 300 covers. This thing is running, like a seamless machine. Like it was so impressive watching that kitchen work and how many years it had worked. And I mean, shit, how many years it's still working. Um, it's, it's pretty insane. And, uh, yeah, I think it was pretty nurturing. I mean, it was definitely like, you know, you got your ass handed to you, but at the same time they were building you up and teaching you the right things. I mean, I was just, I had no background to be anybody else except, exactly what they wanted me to be and luckily I was in really good hands and they took really good care of me I mean I rose through the ranks there like I left as a lead line cook the chef de cuisine who was there had an opportunity to go to New York he invited me there was like sous chefs that didn't get asked to go and I was like sure I'll go to New York like why not I never thought I'd ever want to live there but I'll take the chance and and it was very, very rewarding for me.
3: So, where did you go when you came to New York with the with the It was a CDC that left straight fast.
4: Yeah, his name was Christopher Lee. His name is Christopher Lee, and we we relaunched Guilt after Paul lebron
3: And while at Guilt, it had great success, right? Like mm-hmm. it obtained two Michelin stars, I believe, in its second year open or yeah. its first year I think open. it's
4: first year. In its yeah. first year,
3: yeah. Uh, and so your role there became, you transitioned to become a sous chef at, at Eventually, at yeah, Gilt, like right? after
4: probably a year. And it was, again, a really rewarding experience. It was very fine dining. It was tasting menu only. We got to work with, you know, it was almost like a kitchen where money was no option. We could work with any ingredient and every ingredient. I got so exposed to so many different flavor profiles and, and, and just... World, you know, like, langoustines from, flown all over, from Scotland, like, just ingredients from everywhere. And, I mean, that really, like, was, like, whoa, okay. Like, it was a really, really rewarding experience, and I was really honored to, like, leave there having been a sous chef at, like, only been cooking for such a small
3: amount of time. There's kind of two tracks when you're rising up in a kitchen one is just the fundamentals okay is my technique good is my station set up am I doing my my a job well but your kind of other b job is am I also learning leadership skills am I going to be able to become a sous chef you were able to become a sous chef uh how did it feel when you got there and did you feel like you had a great grasp of what that role was at guilt or did you kind of feel
4: not really? Mm -hmm. I mean, it was definitely, it was definitely in a lot of ways, like a man's world there. Mm -hmm. And I definitely struggled. I would feel, you know, when it's, you know, I always said when you work in fine dining, it's kind of like, like high, like high in fashion. There's a lot of pretension. There's a lot of ego. There's a lot of, um, self-righteousness, just because you're, you know, you think because you're cooking food at such a high level that you're better than everyone else who's not doing that kind of cooking. And um, I'm sure the times have changed, but I do feel like it was really hard for me. I wasn't often very respected. And I mean, luckily I was friends with all the people who were my other peers and sous chefs, but the kitchen staff was, it was tough. You know, I definitely got I remember being called, like, a like a terrible name and, like, going up to my chef and being like, how can you allow this person to speak to me like this? And it just, like, it got completely, like, brushed under the table and was like, well, just deal with it. But it's like, I'm a chef. I thought I was, like, a manager, you know? Like, how can you let, like, a line cook talk to me that way? And mm-hmm. it was definitely, like, gro- some growing
3: pains for sure. Um, and I definitely learned a lot. And being in that role where you're in this for lack of a better term, like this old school style kitchen where everyone's yelling and, and, and all these things are happening where you're, you're having to do your job, but there's internal and external forces on you. Um, How do you, how do you deal with that? Like outside of the restaurant, like as you're kind of coming up in the culinary scene in New York city, are you feeling like beaten down or do you internalize that to grow stronger, to say, like I'm gonna toughen myself up against this? Yeah. Like what's the I mean I was thought ri-
1: process? I
4: def- I definitely was very studious. Like I didn't go out and party. I I never got super into that. Like I would go home and just try to be better than everybody else and really just try to set myself apart by like outdoing somebody. And I <laughs> I have a couple chefs now that like to joke that like they can't like I love to not prove people wrong, but like just show them that I know what I'm saying or doing, you know, in a nice way, not in a in a dickish way. But like um, I, I would just yeah, I would just double down. I would take what was given to me, you know, environmentally and and personally and just sort of like use that as like inertia to like grow for myself and get better and just be better than everybody else around me as much as I could
3: we're going to take a quick break and when we come back we're going to start talking about the Breslin where you spent a huge bulk of your time in New York City stick with us we'll be right back here the line on Heritage Radio
1: restaurant group offers unparalleled service in New York's most iconic locations, including Lincoln Center, Rockefeller Center, and Macy's Herald Square. From meetings and presentations in the glass-walled atrium to galas in the renovated Palm House and intimate wedding showers at Yellow Magnolia Cafe, your event will be perfectly imagined and customized at Brooklyn Botanic Garden. You can also enjoy a la carte brunch and lunch at the picturesque Yellow Magnolia Cafe overlooking Lily Pool Terrace. Chef Rob Newton and chef de cuisine Morgan Jarrett offer warm, distinctive cuisine with a focus on local vegetables, grains, and sustainably sourced meats and fish.
3: Welcome back to The Line here on Heritage Radio. I'm your host, Eli Sussman. Joining me today is Chef Christina Lecky. She runs the kitchen at Reynards, which is located in the Wythe Hotel in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. We're going to get to Reynards in a little bit, but first I want to talk about where you've spent the bulk of your time in New York City, which is inside of the Ace Hotel. Where? Uh, how many years did you spend at the Ace?
4: Uh, six.
3: A good chunk of time.
4: Yeah, it's a long time. (laughs) How did
3: you connect with April Bloomfield in order to be part of that opening team that that developed the concepts that still exist in that hotel?
4: Uh, I met April at an event that I was doing uh, at Gilt, actually. And, well, I've known of the Spotted Pig because working uptown, living in Brooklyn or downtown, and always once a month trying to go to the Spotted Pig after work, being a fortunate person to work in a restaurant that's, like, shut down by 10 p.m. and, and like, getting to go there after and having a meal and not worrying about it closing anytime soon was always pretty exciting. And I really kind of gravitated, like, having worked in a restaurant that was very specifically, like, test-heavy uh, multiple, multiple component heavy and like things you'd work on for weeks and weeks or months and months until you finally are able to put it on the menu. I found her food like after a day of that kind of stuff, very refreshing and, and just so like balanced and simple. And I, it really sort of struck a chord in me. Like I was like, oh, wow, you can just do that. Okay. I hadn't really ever thought about being able to do that, like macerate some cabbage with cheese and lemon and oil and that's it. And it's a thing and it's good. Um, So, and it's funny when I ate there, I mostly ate vegetables. Like I never, like I used to joke when I met her, I was like, I've never had your burger and I've never eaten your nude. I just like, didn't like to eat like, like crazy fatty. Like it was just never what I ever wanted to eat. So I was going there and eating a lot of vegetables, hadn't yet developed a palate for chicken liver toast. And, um, yeah, I, I left New York. There was a time when I I left New York for about six months. My grandfather, who I spoke of earlier was dying of cancer and I really wanted to go be with him because he was so special to me. And as you know, working in the restaurant industry, that's sort of impossible. Um, so I moved back to Philadelphia for six months to sort of I thought it would be longer maybe, but it, you know, I, after he passed away, I realized I, I, my heart was in New York and I needed to head back there. Um, and I was looking for a job and somebody that I was dating at the time was like, you should really go check out, you know, her restaurants and like, you you know, you love her food and you know, I bet she would totally love to have you. And I trailed a few times and I was definitely like very hesitant to take a job that had like french fries on the menu or like a burger on the menu. It was Jeff. it was definitely like, like an ego sort of like, Oh God, you know, like, am I like, what does that say about my career if I'm working in a place that's serving that kind of food? Does that mean I'm like not a great, I'm not ever going to be a great chef. It does. it, It really like, you know, you get so sort of brainwashed when you're cooking very specifically for so long. Um, and you know, but she, she you know, I, I took a leap of faith and and she hired me. And I think at the time I was like the only person she had really ever hired who had prior experience. I feel like she brought up and taught so many of the great people that she's worked with. Um, so it was, I felt like I was like, had to step up on a lot of people because I had my own background and experience in cooking. And I was able to offer that place a lot very quickly. And it so it felt obviously immediately rewarding for me.
3: I'm curious about uh, her intensity level and how that impacted your intensity level. She, you mentioned burgers and fries, but her pursuit of perfection uh, for any food item, <laughs> French fries, totally. for example, is... <laughs> it's really like at a level that most people can't understand unless they've heard of what the process is to even make those French fries. So she has been known to send plates back multiple times to cooks, uh, ticket times be damned. The table will get the perfect food regardless of if it matches up with the other three entrees. Right. Yeah. She's made the decision that nothing leaves the kitchen unless it's absolutely perfect. Yeah. After you became the leader of her kitchen, you are there to then execute that totally. vision in your own style. How did that intensity, did you feel like you already had that intensity? Did you have to up your game to match it? Like no, how did that work out? I feel
4: like, out? I feel like when I was running her kitchen, it, you know, I, and I'd seen other chefs run her kitchen and I just always knew exactly what she wanted. And I understood how to get the results of those things. And, I never was scared when she came in. Like I want, I like, I like wanted her to come in and see that it was like running really well, and she could be kind of at ease. Um, you know, I sort of like gunned for it in a, a lot of ways, and yeah, I think I learned a lot about. I, I'm sure I upped my intensity level in a way that I'm intense about food now, but not as intense about certain other things um, for sure. Uh, but yeah, I, I just think. Uh, you know, why, you know, her and I just kind of hit it off and she, I just was really able to like understand what she was going for and what she was looking for and able to execute it at a really, I think, high and consistent level.
3: Do you still consider her uh, a mentor after, since you've left the restaurant, you spent so much time with her personally, even just traveling around. She, she, did a lot of events overseas and you would often accompany yeah. her on those events, yeah, we, right? Yeah. yeah.
4: I be, beca- yeah, I, I was like doing a lot of, yeah, fun offsite and crazy offsite events. Um, yeah, I just, I think she really relied on me in a lot of ways and I definitely would still call her of course a mentor. I mean, she, she, she helped, you know, expose me to so many amazing experiences and, um, allowed me to, Blossom on my own creatively and, and have a lot of say in the day to day operations of what the food could be, um, and I feel like you know I, I got really lucky in that regard. Like it wasn't just about what she wanted. It we were we were able to sort of have a cohesive, uh, you know, view and say about the food, and I really I really appreciated her trust in me in that regard.
3: She definitely did trust you a lot, and you were able to put a lot of great things on the menu. There, there was a, a period where the menu was a lot your, your yeah, items. Yeah, totally. um, And April, she became very famous while you were working there. Yeah. She was well known, but her, her fame sort of skyrocketed about a year or two into the Breslin. I want to hear your perspective on what it is like to be there executing someone else's vision when they may be not only opening other restaurants, but you know, doing book tours, doing television appearances, did it? Did it ever wear on you? Is there kind of like this weird give and take tug where you're like, I, "I'm I'm here, I'm doing the work. It's under April's name." Did that ever? Did that ever grate on I you? Think,
4: I think eventually, towards I think the end of my time and 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 after I started, like after I would left the day to day operations at. At the Ace, I think I started to be like, okay, whoa, like, what, what, what am I doing? What, what, you know, what am I going to be like, trying to like, yeah, do my potentially my own thing or, um, yeah. But I, I feel like at the time, like, I was a pretty loyal like worker. Like, I, I, I wouldn't have been there if I was feeling bitter or unhappy. You know, like, the job is too hard to be in that environment um, and not be happy in some way. And I felt like I was, I was getting a lot of, I was getting a lot out of it and I felt rewarded in other ways. And I had built a lot of really strong friendships and I felt like for me, it was really rewarding being a mentor for so many people in that company that, you know, to be fair, I, I, she wouldn't have, she didn't have time to do that for people, you know? And, they were really there for the place and certainly for her name, but, you know, they were staying and, and learning from me. And, you know, I feel really proud about the amount of people I've gotten to, like, catapult into doing other things or gotten them great jobs elsewhere, you know, and, and that's the stuff that sort of gets, you know, that, that really sort of kept me going and kept me really motivated.
3: Um, yeah. I, I want to ask about Ken. You had left the restaurant group when Revelations came out about Ken Friedman's actions towards um, mostly empl- female employees, but also some women uh, that were outside of the company. And a lot of things that um, occurred happened at the Spotted Pig. Uh, obviously, you can say whatever you, you <laughs> want about the topic, but I want to ask a specific question, which you can answer or not, which is after the allegations uh, came out about Ken... Uh, people addressed a lot of hatred and animosity towards April. You're very close to April. I'm curious, just how do you perceive the entire situation, um, both with Ken and also how April uh, was addressed and and treated after the, the article came out in the New York Times?
4: Sure. I mean, I'd left the company before all that stuff sort of came to fruition. Mm-hmm. I'd been gone for almost a year at that point and maybe a full year at the point of the article I can't quite remember the exact timeline but you know I think you know obviously this is a hard topic for me and mm. you know it's it's difficult for me to be on radio particularly eloquent about it and you know I think that April is experiencing backlash because I think people see her as a leader And as a female and I think there is just a general expectation of her doing a bit more and speaking up for her employees a bit more. And I think in her, in her silence, I think that has rubbed some people the wrong way. And I think people, I think when you get to a certain point in your career, you have a lot of responsibility and expectation about how you're perceived and how you're supposed to act. And, um, and I think for her, she's she's finding, she's figuring out how to get herself out there and, and probably at some point will make a statement and sort of tell her side of everything. But I think it's obviously been a really tough time for that company and for her and all the hard work she'd put into it to sort of see it, uh, be exposed in this kind of way, I'm sure is really shocking. And I can't imagine, to be honest, I can't put myself in her shoes and really, and think about how that feels. So, you know, like I said, I think, I think that's sort of why people have come out in that kind of way against her, just because I, you know, I think she hasn't really said much about it. And I think that's troubling for a lot of people.
3: I want to talk now about Renard's where you've been spending the last year. You went from working at Perhaps the busiest, most popular hotel in Manhattan to the <laughs> busiest, most popular hotel in Brooklyn. Uh, but they're totally different, right? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I would love for you to talk a little bit about the differences for people that have never been to either one. I'm not sure how that's possible. There seems to be yeah, 2,000 they're, they're people there they're
4: definitely every, totally different. every
3: single night, but first talk a little bit about the difference, like what does what do you do at, at Reynards cooking-wise, and then sure. also talk a, lot, a little bit about how it's part of the Andrew Tarlow organization. Sure.
4: I feel like, one first off, I never thought I'd work in a hotel in general, and then to have worked at two back-to-back hotels is sort of a little shocking for me and sometimes when I think about my where my career has gone but I think I think I'm at Renard because I value and respect sort of the vision of what Andrew Tarlow has done and who he is as a restaurateur and an, and an entrepreneur in a way I just think I can relate to his values and feelings in a lot, in a lot of real ways that I feel. And I guess I don't look at Renard as a restaurant as a restaurant in a hotel. I just look at it, feel like it's more of a restaurant. I mean, the difference is there's not room service 24 hours. There's no lobby, like giant lobby, full of like serving an additional lobby menu. You know, the rooftop bar has a really small, uh, limited menu because of the, you know, there's not, we can't really do a lot of cooking up there. You know, it just feels like a slower sort of culturally, uh, like a slower sort of more meaningful environment just because it's less chaotic in a lot of ways. And I think having gone from running such a large operation, that's, you know, I mean, Renard, like the Breslin, is breakfast, lunch, and dinner. But again, there's no 24 hour room service. There's no lobby. There's no like crazy lobby. There's no like, you know, I, I feel like there's, it's a, it's still a lot going on at Renard. I don't want to downplay it and make it seem like it's not like, it's not, can't be crazy. We do a ton of events and, um, and yeah, and I'm staffing, you know, a large all day food program. Um, I don't know. I think I'm losing track. We <laughs> <to> get back. <laughs> uh,
3: I, I want to know a little bit about like, what does it feel like to work, um, in an Andrew Tarlow organization? Yeah. Like, has it afforded you any, freedoms or any constraints perhaps
4: uh, no I mean I feel like Andrew definitely trusts me and I feel like I'm I definitely can't work for anybody who doesn't wouldn't trust me or doesn't trust me so I do feel like I creatively have full full control and full freedom you know that being said I understand what the place is where the place is I understand his, his ethos of you know as where we how we source and where we source and it's sort of those were always my values too and we were sort of sourcing similarly um and so in that regard it's quite it's quite fun and you know for me it's a really great opportunity to cook on a wood fire cooking on a wood hearth and a wood oven um has afforded me a really fun you know luxury of having that as my day-to-day operation to be able to like wake, you know, start of day at like 7, 6 a.m., 7 a.m. and like light a fire with the sun blasting in the kitchen is kind of like, it feels really special and refreshing.
3: The menu at Reynards feels very much driven by ingredients. And I know that there's this every menu dis- restaurant tries to be ingredient driven, but it really feels like you're picking things that you like and then cooking them the way you want to cook them and not overstuffing the plate. It feels like you're choosing certain things and you're highlighting them and you're really rolling with that specific product. So I would love for you to talk about how you make those decisions. I know that the Tarla organization has great farm and direct purveyor ties, but like how are you deciding what cut to use and also you have that big hearth, how do you make the decision of what you're going to roast and what you're not going to roast? You know, there could be a tendency to just be like, let's throw it all on the fire, but...
4: Which we kind of do. But (laughs) I do think... The good thing about wood cooking, and I do think specifically the way we've set up the hearth is it's not beating you over the head of like char-grilled smoky flavors. There's definitely a lot of layering and a lot of subtlety with it. And I think um, using the wood in a certain way... To make, yeah, I think that's what I enjoy about it because I will say probably eighty percent of the menu is some is touching wood in some way, but I don't think you're eating that menu like feeling at the end of it like your your palate is completely charred or burnt out, you know, like. Mm-hmm. Um, and I sort of, that's sort of like, you know, I guess that's kind of the funny, annoying thing about me, you know, it's like, yes, there's broccoli, but then the the broccoli's blanched and then hung in the hearth for 30 minutes. And then we pick it back up on the plancha or the grill. And like, you know, so it's like, yeah, it's just broccoli, but you know, we definitely try, I, for me, I just can't help but to try to layer, uh, flavors in a really delicate way. Um, it's just sort of what I've been gravitating towards, and and you know, and I want to c- people to eat food in general, and feel good about themselves when they're leaving, and not feel like they've, like, killed themselves or over overstuffed or over satiated themselves. Like for me, that's how I want to eat. I want to eat leaving feeling like in- energized and 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 like revitalized, and not feel weighed down by a lot of fat or a lot of, you know, unnecessary substances on a plate.
3: It's interesting that you mentioned the process of of the broccoli because at Renard's, it does seem like, whenever I've eaten there, it feels like you're back there tasting a sauce and there's like adjustments being made on the pickup. It seems like it's, I mean this in a, a positive way, it seems like it's like a work in progress. Like, you're tasting and building flavors, like, as the day goes on. Conversely, Breslin always felt like, and I mean this uh, again in a positive way, it kind of felt like a factory. Like everything was like, you knew that the burger was going to taste exactly the same every single time. So my question about that is, is New York with the staffing problems that we have, it feels like it would be easier to do it the Breslin way. Like weigh the burger out to this, cook it for four minutes, put it on the bun Send it out, you know, whatever the process yeah. is. But it feels like at Renard's, it feels like you really need like super duper heady cook <laughs> cook cooks. You know? Yeah. You don't need like soldiers, you need like cook cooks. So how have you been able to build your team, train your team when it's really like you're cooking from really yeah. deep within?
4: I mean uh yeah, it's it's definitely a challenge because it is yeah, running an all day operation, like trying to constantly have enough staff. But I feel like the people who I've been able to work with thus far, um, they just, they, I think they're really happy being in an environment where the food is being like highly respected and well looked after and that they're, sorry, I'm drinking sparkling. <laughs> <laughs> that they being held accountable <laughs> that somebody's like looking after them and paying attention I think in a lot of kitchens like you know you can be ignored or not like or be allowed to serve something mediocre or that you know and I sort of I i can't let people do that <laughs> not, not on my watch anyway but you know and I think but I think people really respond to that because I do feel like I've found a way to do that in a really positive rewarding way and not in in, like, sort of a, a soul soul degrading, like, beat down kind of way. And and I think that's what people are there for. They're there for, like, to work with really amazing product and and to be treated with respect and, and to be looked after and cared for.
3: Beyond staffing, which everyone seems to be struggling with the last couple years, for sure, uh, I'm curious about what's giving you problems, what's keeping you up at night in your job. Like, is it food costing? Is it... Sourcing, like, what's what's a challenge for you as the executive chef of Renard's that's maybe specific to, to your gig or not?
4: Um, I definitely think, I mean, what, there's so many challenges. I feel like there's endless menus sometimes for me to work on. I'm, like, always kind of behind keeping up with, like, you know, the constant, you know, breakfast, lunch, and dinner menus. And, uh, yeah, I think for me it's what keeps me up is making sure that I'm finding time for the creative balance that I so desperately need and and want because I do feel like if I'm not being creative then I'm not my happiest self and I feel like it, when I feel like I've gotten away from my creative self is when I start to sort of like not panic but I get I get a little nervous because I don't want to lose that part of myself in in a large operation.
3: There's There's a uh, a misconception that a lot of things that are hearth items cooked over fire are going to be like heavy and more wintry. You know, it's like big chops, roasted vegetables that you then maybe puree and there's a lot of butter. So is there something that it just basically got hot like this week, but it is almost summer. Moving into the warmer months, is there a dish or something that you're really excited about using a product that you're that you're gonna put in the hearth that you're gonna conceptualize a dish that is like a light summer dish that still has that roasty aspect to it
4: I mean I'm really enjoying like now just we we've been using like green chickpeas and like just started getting fava beans and you know blistering being able to char those things whole in the coals and then have these like not touched on the inside, but smoky and like lightly charred. And I think that sort of then moving into tomatoes. And I feel like those are the kind of things that right now I'm like really excited about. And then taking those, all those pod shells and making like a really light broth with them and and using that on another dish. So I think the thing that I really enjoy about having the hearth is that it is a source of so much flavor layering and and product. Like, you can really do things like a hundred different ways and, and you know, maybe you're grilling something or maybe you're throwing things directly in the coals or, you know, or using, like, the plancha in some or hanging something or, or resting stuff over the... So, I, for me, it's, like, it's an endless journey of having, uh, um, like, a hundred different ways to, like cook a carrot.
3: <laughs> I'm going to close on this final question. And it's, it's kind of a big one. There's no monetary constraints. Do you have a dream of doing your own restaurant one day? And if yes, Where do you think it might be and (laughs) what do you think it might look like? You can dream as small or as big as you really want. And what does that vision look like?
4: Um, If I'm dreaming, I'm probably no longer in the United States. And I would love to just be doing something really tiny with like one or two of my closest friends. So at the end of the day, I have somebody to like smile with and like have a drink with and you know and the food just really be about you know the smallest little things of the day and being able to change things on a whim because that's all you have to do or close when you don't want to be open and you know and that's obviously very unrealistic in a, at least most of this country and yeah i don't know i'm i'm sort of definitely something small and somewhere not anywhere near here <laughs>
3: For now, though, you can find her in Williamsburg at Renard's. Uh, What's the address there?
4: Uh, 80 Wythe Avenue.
3: 80 Wythe Avenue. They do breakfast, lunch, and dinner. (laughs) We do it all. Thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate you being here.
4: Thanks, Eli. Thanks for having me.
3: Join us again next Tuesday and every Tuesday for new episodes of The Line here on Heritage Radio.